Okay, I think it works. No, it doesn't work. Nope. Let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we do want to thank you that the Bible tells us uh, all that we need to turn our sorrow into dancing, but I guess it tells us in ways that we don't expect, so we need your help to understand the Bible tonight as we read it and as we think about it. Send your Holy Spirit to teach us how the Lord Jesus turns our sorrow into joy. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Page 923, Acts chapter 14, and verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, some with the apostle. When an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowd. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to our living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day he went on with Barnabas 
to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples and returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Now that's where we'll stop and pause. And uh, Natalie's going to take the children out to their group. We'll come back to that in a moment. Okay, well, let's make a start. And let me ask you a question to begin with. Uh, would you say that life is um, great happiness or is it hard slog? What do you reckon? Now, as far as our culture is concerned, great happiness is the thing that's good. And great happiness is what uh, everybody is after. And I think that our culture is, uh, is fairly strong on that. You go on the estate and you ask people, what would you like your kids to be when they grow up? And they all turn around and say, it doesn't really matter what they do, as long as they're happy. Happiness drives the decisions that we make. And we make it sound nice and wide and we say, I want the happiness of everybody. Really, what I really want is the happiness of me. That is what everybody wants more than anything else. And you might just expect me to say, but Christians are different. We're into misery instead. <laughs> and the answer is no, we're not, because, well, we believe in happiness too, and heaven is a happy place. It's just that. When the God of heaven defines happiness one way, and the world defines happiness another way, there is going to be a clash, and that clash is played out in the lives of people who follow God. And then life for them becomes unhappy because of that clash. And then we discover, verse 22 is absolutely right, that in the great joy of following Jesus, we need to understand that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And Acts 14 gives us an idea of what real happiness looks like from the windows of heaven and yet we'll see how it leads also to hard slog, which is part of the package of being happy. Now how do you put those two together and what's the connection? Well, let's look at that passage in Acts chapter 14 and find out. Let's start with happy. 
and happiness in heaven comes in verse 1 when the gospel is believed. In other words, it is a happy thing when people see the reality, the goodness, the greatness that there is a true and living God in his world. I think you can compare it to the joy of a child who's taken away from the family and always in her heart of hearts loves her father, wants to be reunited with her father and then she discovers that her father is still alive, that he cares for her and that he has got in touch. And that joy of uh, someone being reunited is uh, the joy of uh, Christians when they see non-Christians coming together with the God who loves them. And that's what's happening in that synagogue in Iconium in verse 1. And it's a real place and uh, we show the map and it's uh, now uh, Iconium is where the new Turkish town of Konya is. It's the seventh largest town in Turkey. And these are real places, they're all on the map. And Antioch, I have trouble, there are two Antiochs on the map. There's the Antioch there, that's in Pisidian Antioch, uh, which is where we are at the moment. And then we end up the story in uh, Antioch, which is called Syrian Antioch. And if you think, well, you shouldn't have so many Antiochs on the map, you just take London. I think there's 18 different Londons around the world. So don't complain about Antioch too much. You've only got two of those. And that's where uh, it all is. And people have become Christians there. And that area of Turkey is what the Bible area of Galatia uh, was contained in. And therefore when uh, Paul writes later a letter to the Galatians, he's writing the people who live in this area. Which is great because happiness comes when people believe the gospel and the fact that the letter is written afterwards shows that they stayed believing the gospel. Which is wonderfully uh, joyful that they continued and didn't give up. That's great happiness when you see the gospel being believed and people staying on their belief. And it's happiness on the move. It's going out. You look at verse 1 and there's people believing. You look at verse 2 and you get a but. They're not believing. But then you get verse 3 and it hasn't stopped anybody talking. They're still explaining the gospel. And another but in verse 4. They're not listening, are they? And then in verses 6 and 7, you see them going out to these other places. To Lystra and Derby. And people are becoming Christians there. At the end of... Uh, this part of the Bible, Acts chapter 20, verse 4. I think it's stuck there in your notes. You met a man called uh, Gaius, and he comes from Derby. Must have become a Christian about this time. People are becoming Christians. The gospel is going out. And happiness is on the move. And happiness gets a wonderful little picture in this man who is healed, the lame man who is in Lystra. That is a kind of illustration of the happiness that God brings to somebody because where well, he's a lame man, he's lame from birth, he's never walked any of, any of his life, and here, here is a man who has faith to believe. In other words, what that really means 
is that he believes what Paul is telling him. You can tell that in verse 10, because when Paul says, get up, he gets up. He's listened to Paul. He believes what Paul is saying, and he does it. That's what having faith is all about. Simple. And it leads to the discovery of, ultimately for him, heaven come early because he is suddenly made perfect in his ability to walk again. And heaven breaks out into his life early when he is able to do that. Now, this is a very special miracle. You might remember the most important apostle in the first part of Acts is called Peter. And what's his first miracle? In Acts chapter 3, he gets a lame man walking. And now, Paul, who's the, the apostle of the second half of Acts, he gets Peter's credentials, if I can put it like that, from God. So these are special commendations from God for these special servants of his. But I think even for us, there is a sense when anyone becomes a Christian, in everyday ways, heaven breaks in. We become the people that we're going to be in the future, just like this man becomes the man he would be in the future without disability. And it happens in our case in everyday ways, where people begin to start relating to other people differently and in a way that features maybe how they will be when they get uh, to God and live with Him. And you see those differences beginning to take shape in someone's life. You begin to see heaven break in to life now. As I said, in ordinary ways. There was a man who said uh, uh, that his dad, who used to be a drunk, he became a Christian, and the man said this. He said, in the Bible, Jesus turned water into wine. In our house, he turned beer into furniture. And the person whose life was ultimately given to his own consumption and happiness now starts producing change that benefits others. God brings heaven into lives in ordinary ways. And so you see when people become Christians, that heavenly effect beginning to show itself as they generate love and joy and peace and kindness and patience and heaven begins to break in the way they relate to others. That's wonderful happiness for Christians to see God doing that work in people that they meet and share the gospel with. That is what makes Christians happy. Those new lives that they have in front of their eyes. But then you also see what makes Christians unhappy because if happiness for Christians is seeing the gospel believed, unhappiness for Christians is seeing the gospel resisted and misunderstood and opposed and there are different reasons why people do that with Jesus. Often, as you can see in verse 2, it's just plain personal dislike. The gospel is resisted 
uh, not because it's wrong, but because it tells you in verse 2 that their minds are poisoned against the brothers. Oh, we just don't like them. It's not disagreement over what's said, it's just dislike for the people saying it. <coughs> it doesn't matter that the word of God brings is a word of grace in verse 3 and that there are wonderful signs and wonders being done to go with the words of grace. In other words, there really is nothing to dislike at all. They're doing it without any reason, but they'll do it anyhow. And the stones get up in verse 5 because they just don't like you. And there are Christians like that, or the people are treating us. We, we got that on the doors today when we went around and visited people in our homes and our estate. And there were people who um, saw kind um, uh, concern uh, as uh, we knocked and cared for them. And immediately the door shuts, not because we'd done anything to dislike. There might have been all the kindness there in the world, but they just didn't like Christians. The personal dislike was enough. That's one reason. Another reason is that there is misunderstanding in verse 11. So people see the healing of the lame man and they think that Paul and Barnabas are gods. Now you, you can shut the Bible at this point and you can open up the history books. And the history books tell you that Luke is amazingly accurate in how he's describing things in this part. See, people think the Bible is just nice stories and then the historians come up and they do a bit of digging and they find out that there are inscriptions in this area to the gods of Hermes and Zeus which tells you that that's why the locals are going there because these local gods are big for them. It's already something that's uh, already on their minds. And then in a different uh, document altogether, there's a poet called Ovid who says that uh, these two gods, it's a story of course, that these two gods, Hermes and Zeus, they are mentioned in verse 12 and they come down and they're turned away by a thousand homes. But then there's this old couple, one that the bloke's called Philemon and the woman's called Borcus. And they look after the two gods and they're hospitable for them. And what the gods do, they reward the old couple and they kill off the thousand who rejected them. Now that might throw some light on verse 11, why they're so enthusiastic. The crowds don't want to be destroyed like the last lot that got on the wrong side of them. So this time they want to get it right. Now look, those things are outside the Bible, they just happen to back up the Bible. But we don't need Bible backup from outside the Bible because... What the Bible tells us about people getting it wrong, that's enough for us to see that it's true. People are full of misunderstanding when it comes to God. And that's what we're prone to do, get things back to front. Now when they do that in verse 11, uh, Paul and Barnabas might not have understood the misunderstanding because they're getting the misunderstanding and talking about it in Lyconian, which Paul and Barnabas wouldn't have understood. But in verse 13, when the oxen and the priests turn up, now Paul understands the misunderstanding. And he goes up and he says, please, 
You've got to stop thinking that we are in any way better than here. We're just like here. But I want to correct what you think about this living God. You mustn't think of him like that, as somebody that you've got to bring sacrifices and look after. Why, here's the one in verse 17, who's giving you your harvest, who's doing everything for you. And he's been looking after you really well by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Oh, you might think that he's done a big thing for this one man. Let me tell you that God has been big in the way that he's looked after your whole community year after year after year, far bigger. And again, you see, that's one of the occupational hazards of being a Christian. If people don't hate you, then they could go the other way and focus on your goodness than on the great goodness and provision of God, which is far bigger than anything you could have done for them. And yet they focus on that tiny little thing that you have done compared to the big things that God has done. Another reason why Christians uh, are unhappy when the gospel is rejected. There is this uh, pendulum swing of change against the people who brought them joy only five minutes ago. In verse 19, the same crowd are turned by what they hear from others and they stone Paul enough to kill him because that's what they thought when they walked away from the body. And yet they find out he's alive in verse 20, but he's not like James Bond who recovers without a simple, uh, single trace of being hurt. And then he wants, what does James Bond do? He adjusts his tie and he goes back into town and carries on where he left off. No, it's not like that with Paul. When you want to find out how this affected him, you've only got to read Galatians. Remember I told you the Galatians letter he wrote the people in this area and he tells them in Galatians chapter 6 verse 17, it's on your notes, that he bears in his body the marks of Jesus, meaning the wounds of Jesus, the signs of being attacked that Jesus had on his body, meaning the scars, in this case, left by the stones. When he picked himself up from the ground on that day, he would have been a bloody mess and the scars would have stayed. And he could tell them that they are still there as he bears in his body the marks of Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, he tells other Christians uh, how he was stoned, and he's thinking about this day when it happened, and clearly this day's experience never left his mind. He never forgot how much uh, that uh, experience affected him. And my friends, it's tough today, isn't it, when people we've loved and served and done our best for turn and uh, just turn against us. Uh, they don't throw rocks, but they throw sharp words very often that scar us for life. Because they've changed their minds about Jesus and they've changed their minds about us. And I think it's true of every church that the greatest foes of any church 
would once have been their greatest friends. And now they're nowhere. And uh, if the church is mentioned, they're spit feathers and um, uh, do their worst uh, to drag down their reputation. Ah, what's that got to do with us? Well, look, let me say, if you're someone who's new to Christian things, isn't it an honest place to start by admitting how easy it is to get God wrong? Isn't it easy to be swayed by the prejudice of other people against Christians? And just to think they're rubbish because they're mixed do? Isn't it possible to get either under-impressed or over-impressed by Christians without seeing beyond them to the God who's been amazingly kind and gracious all the years of your life? Isn't it easy to uh, try and uh, do the God question by working out whether but God is going to give you the happiness as you want your happiness. My friends, He will give you happiness when you are with Him, but until you're with Him, you're going to be with the people who don't like Him and therefore they won't like you either. And therefore, mostly being a Christian today will mean personally disliked, being misunderstood, being turned against by the people who have every reason to think God is good, but don't. And so with many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God if you follow Jesus today. Don't just uh, go for him because he's got this magic formula to make you happy. Go for him because of his love for you and because one day in his presence you will discover what happiness really is. What do you mean to church? Well, it's easy for the church to get God wrong, to get the message one-sided and to say, well, ha, miracles are normal, Jesus is alive, financially you'll be rewarded, and if only you market Christian, Christianity attractively, people will come in. Just give them the good points. No one will tell you verse 22 that through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God. And yet, it is verse 22 which is the only message that is going to strengthen you and strengthen your soul and encourage you to continue in the faith. Because if you don't have the message of realism coming at you, you will give up. The minute you are disliked, the minute you are misunderstood, the minute people turn against you as Christians. If you don't believe the truth of the Bible, that the happiness comes with unhappiness. As people will turn from you the way they would turn from God. And what happens if you are a real believer? Is the Christian life great happiness? Or is it hard slog? My friends, it will be great happiness for you if you change what makes you happy. 
And if now what makes you happy is the joy of other people, finding their happiness in the kindness of God towards them and in the joy of helping people to live gratefully to the God who loves them, in the joy of seeing heaven break in everyday ways into their lives, if that's what makes you happy, then yes. There is happiness. And we can make that our happiness. Press the button that recalibrates the head that says happiness is to be found here. But my friends, if that is what you do, and if this is where you will find your happiness, then let me tell you equally truthfully that there will be more times when you will be unhappy because people will reject you and not receive the happiness that God would bring to them. And yet, what verse 22 says, the Bible wants to encourage you to continue. Now my friends, what that does not mean is that the Bible just encourages you to keep going. <coughs> that you just circle the wagons, you defend yourselves, and you just somehow grit your teeth and you keep marching on as a Christian. That's not what the Bible's got in mind when it says continue. What it means when it talks about continuing is that you don't let the unhappiness or the disappointment stop you in your tracks in your desire to want to bring God's happiness to others. It's the happiness of heaven to keep bringing the joy of heaven into people's lives and not to stop doing that, but to continue doing that. To be encouraged to keep doing that, even though through many tribulations you are entering the kingdom of heaven. Don't stop the work of going out to bring the joy of heaven into the hearts of others. That's what verse 22, I think, wants us to continue doing. I'm going to pray that God will help us to continue doing it. First, I'm going to stop and let you pray. And in one minute, you talk to God about what um, you want him to do uh, in terms of your happiness, in terms of wanting to retune your happiness into bringing happiness to others through the gospel. Pray that God will do that for you because only he can. And after a minute of you praying, I'll pray, and then we've got questions or a chance to ask them anyway. And maybe come up with an answer or two as well. Let's first pray that God will help us to find our happiness in the, in the spread of the gospel as a church. When I'm in this so let me pray. Our Father, we do want to thank you for uh, the way that uh, you used the Apostle uh, to uh, bring uh, happiness to light. Thank you for the word of grace. We live in a world where you've got to perform well for anybody to like you. Thank you it isn't like that with you, that you are gracious, that you love us and receive us when we don't perform or when we perform badly. Thank you that you are uh, the God who is 
future breaks into our lives. We thank you for the joy of seeing the changes that you make when people uh, have faith to believe, have uh, the ability to listen to what they hear and then act on what they hear. Thank you for the way that you make a difference. We see that as we look around this room and we notice the difference you are making to people here and we thank you that that is true everywhere. And we thank you, our great and gracious God, that you are the God who looks after us year by year in the things you give us, in the way that you provide for us. Father, we thank you that our joy comes as we see your great uh, goodness to us. And we pray that you will help us to locate our joy in bringing an experience of your goodness into the lives of people on our estate. And having done that for five years and having met 5,000 people and wanting to do that in their lives, help us, Father, when we do feel that there's rejection because there's personal dislike or misunderstanding or a pendulum swing from liking us one minute to hating us the next, Lord, we pray that you would please help us not to cave in, to give up, but to continue wanting that happiness to flood into people's lives, even if it means that through, through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. Help us, the church, to keep on that track. For the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen.